and welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we compare and contrast a piece of literature with its film or TV adaptation. My name is Laura, and I am the literature expert in this room currently. <laughs> Hi, my name is Danny, and I'm the film expert. Laura, you know what I noticed? No. When you do the intro, you say contrast, and I say contrast. There's an oh. accent on a different syllable. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've never noticed that, but... Yeah. Well, so. yeah, welcome to Film is Lit. Full spoilers on this podcast. We're a full spoiler podcast, and full spoilers for both the movie and the book that we are discussing. And today on the podcast... Warning! Warning! Parental control warning. This is probably the most uh, explicit piece, or at least movie, we've ever covered. It's sexually explicit, because we've yes. done other kinds of explicit. Right. I think it's going to spur some interesting conversations about pornography and erotic literature. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But if you're under the age of 18, watch this movie anyways. <laughs> Censorship <laughs> is for dweebs. Uh-huh. I mean, it's a very tasteful... Oh, yeah. Agreed. ...depiction of erotica. Yeah. But it is very explicit. Very graphic yeah. um, and very intense if you're not ready for it. So today on the podcast, we are discussing the novel The Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Yep. And it's loose adaptation, The Handmaiden, a South Korean film directed by the wonderful... Amazing, well-known in the film Twitter community, Park Chan-wook. Yeah, we talked about one of his movies in, gosh, back in like season one, episode four. Four, I think, yeah. in Lolita, because he made Stoker, and that's one of my favorite films. So yeah. Danny and I watched this movie, I guess this is getting into Journeys, but we watched this a while ago, and I just rewatched it last night, or we just rewatched it for the second time, and... It was after I had read the book, and I liked it so much more the second time because I had a little bit of background, but I also just had a fun time rewatching it. Yeah. It's a beautiful movie. Th- th- I mean, gorgeous. Yeah. Every shot in The Handmaiden is stunning. Yeah. Just spellbindingly beautiful, to quote the film. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. yeah. I love it. As I said, Park Chan Wook very well known in the film cinephile community not as well known to american audiences uh, general audiences but i think he's slowly making his way into more popular culture with some english adaptations of works like he made the great tv show the limited series the little drummer girl starring florence Pugh. Uh, yeah, it's a six-episode miniseries. Uh, I watched, actually, all six episodes a year ago um, on a flight from L.A. to Massachusetts uh, oh, last summer. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, so, yeah, but he mostly directs films in Korea about Koreans, and he's known for Old Boy, which is his big kind of film. It has a big twist at the end. I'd also recommend Old Boy. But, yeah, I love that this movie has such a huge following at least in america or on letterboxd because it's it just opens the door for other people to discover his films which are great and i haven't seen all his films but stoker yeah Yeah. another one that's in english that's one of my favorite films old boy is great that's in my top 100 as well um he made thirst which I love. It's not my top 100, but still a great film. I, it's kind of like a modern take on vampires. It's like if Twilight were good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm very excited to talk about this film. For sure, yeah. yeah. I'm less excited to talk about the book. I feel like I'm going to have a hot take because the online book review community has very high praise Yeah. for the book, which is called The Fingersmith. I think we mentioned that, but... Yeah, I really struggled to get through this book. I don't know. Do you want to go into Journeys or yeah. anything else we want to talk about? Let's do it. So the book came out in 2002. Oh, which was the same year that my car came out. Oh, gosh, 20 years ago. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, uh, my little car. Little um, Ford Fusion. Focus. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never getting rid of her. 
anyway, so 2002, written by Sarah Waters, who is a queer author, and this book is very much about sort of the forbidden aspects of queer love, specifically in Victorian England, but the first time I read it, it was a few months ago, and it's a pretty thick book, so I decided to, re to start it early just to make sure that I could get it done, and truly, it took me forever. So I had already seen the movie first a couple of years ago, and I loved it. There's a huge twist. Actually, a couple huge twists. Three twists. Yeah. And so reading the book, I was like, okay, I already know what's going to happen going in, so like maybe it won't be a huge deal. But they are fun twists, and they, it's a really big deal, but I thought that the book was so drawn out. It's structured in three parts, and at the end of part one, there's a twist. At the end of part two, there's a twist. And at the end of part three, there's kind of a foreseeable twist that happens. Yeah, just like the movie. Well, yeah, but oh my gosh, it takes forever to get to those twists. I'm telling you. Like, yeah. I think the reason Sarah Waters wanted to do that was to sort of crank up the tension. And when you finally figure out, literally on the last page of part one, you're like, oh shit like that's when you find out that there's a plot between the countess and the fake count who comes to marry her yeah. for the money rather than what you think is being set up which is just the plot between the fake count and the fingersmith yeah so like that's a big th that's literally last page of part one but oh my gosh to get there, you have to slog through so much narrative and exposition. Yeah. And, and to be fair, she's a wonderful writer. Like, some of her sentences were beautiful. I fell in love with the writing, but honestly, it just wasn't enough to keep me pulled through the plot line. Yeah. So I think that's a huge... And I, I actually told Danny not to read it because mm -hmm. I didn't think that it was worth going through that to get to the twists that we know are coming in the movie. Yeah, right. Like, I, I saw the size of the book and the amount of pages. It was like 600 pages or something, something like, like that. that. I'm yeah. like, I'll pass on this go around. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's unfortunate because I think the prose is well written. I just, I love editing. And that's a huge part of my job, right? Not necessarily fiction, but just communication in general is really difficult. And I love the challenge of the edit, like the craft of the edit. Right. And I have this ongoing hypothesis that every single book over like a hundred pages can always be shortened into like a short story. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I have just this running hypothesis and I feel like every time I read a book, I'm just constantly like, yep, that didn't need to be in there. Like, I just, I like weeding things out. And unfortunately with this book, I think the quality suffered because of the beautiful prose mm -hmm. so didn't love the book but anyway that's kind of my journey on to you yeah well just to comment on that case in point take no country for old men which was teeing up to be one of our favorite books but then it just has an additional mm -hmm. ending chapter of like 50 pages that could be full stop removed wholesale from the book to make it as perfect as uh, the movie is. And the only exception to my rule is 11-22-63. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's like over <laughs> a thousand pages. And I'm like, I want more. Like, where's yeah. parts one, two, three, four, and five? <laughs> yeah, 11-22-63 is what? I think, I think it's... It's at least 1,123 pages. pages, I believe, Something is the like exact that. number. And the audiobook was like... <laughs> it was like 40 hours but, but any like, yeah like the, the journey yeah. he's so good at writing it doesn't matter whatever. yes that's that's the best long book and it doesn't need to be shortened anyway over to you. yeah fingersmith too long i'm glad i didn't yeah read it so yeah like i said i knew of park chan wook for years i saw stoker when it came out in theaters and then i was very interested in seeing The Handmaiden because it had premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in early 2016. I always forget this movie is as modern, or yeah, recent. You're right, yeah. yeah. And it got a huge amount of acclaim from that. And then it came out in June of 2016 in the States 
Amazon Studios was distributing it, and it was in theaters when I was on my road trip across the country with my friend Sage. Uh, so I remember being in Gillette, Wyoming, being like, are there any theaters around here that show The Handmaiden? And they're like... We don't know what you're talking what is about. A theater? Yeah. <laughs> you have cows and that's it. Yeah, it unfortunately only premiered in uh, New York, LA, Boston, and Chicago, and a, a few other big cities. But as well known as Park Chan Wook was in the film community, it didn't get a wide release in America until after its initial limited release when it was a hit for the mm. for the amount of theaters it, it played in and the film overall ended up grossing 38 million dollars which is one of the highest grossing south korean movies uh, ever and we should mention that it's in korean and japanese right yeah so it, this stands at the top it, it's next to parasite for the highest grossing south korean film oh, wow. ever I, parasite surpassed well surpassed it now sure. but yeah so i wasn't able to catch it in theaters unfortunately but as soon as it came out on streaming on amazon immediately saw it and loved it and all my cinephile friends loved it too and it's a shame that this is not more well seen and, and well known among just casual moviegoers but it's kind of understandable. It's it's a long movie, almost two and a half hours, but I think that time absolutely flies by. Again, it's a comprehensive, sumptuous, sensory overloading masterwork from a director working on a level even the best rarely achieve. Mm. You can just tell that this is a director firing on all cylinders, complete yeah. untethered vision stylized vision yeah. yeah and i love how it uses the you know the victorian crime novel as a loose a loose inspiration for another uh you know visually stimulating and challenging story yes okay i'm so interested that you describe it in that way because something that i was interested in looking into was whether sarah waters was happy with this adaptation or how it came to be she was because there was a 2005 bbc adaptation of the fingersmith which full disclosure we didn't watch mm -hmm. but i was interested to know what she thought especially because park chan wook is known for like stylized violence yeah. And I was like, gosh, like, what would I feel like if someone like Quentin Tarantino or Park Chan-wook came to me wanting to adapt this very stylized class and social commentary piece? And I found this article in The Guardian where she actually said that that style worked because of the Victorian Gothic mm. style that she used to talk about these sort of quote-unquote taboo subjects so very similar to like Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights that stylized darkness was something that she capitalized on to make her book successful and that's actually the she's written a bunch of other books and a lot of the other books also take place in that time period so she said that was actually very appropriate to introduce into the tone of the movie so I thought yeah. that was really interesting yeah, from what I researched, in every step of the way, Park Chan-wook was in contact with Sarah Waters, looking for her comments, looking for her approval. Mm. He admitted up front, saying, like, I'm a man, but my writing partner is a woman, and we'll be writing together. We'll be adapting this together. And uh, after they sent her the first finished script, Waters liked the script a lot, but said it was more appropriate to say that the film was inspired by her novel, not based on her novel. Yeah, and honestly, like, to their advantage, because they made some key changes that make this a stronger piece, yeah. in my opinion. Yes. I think that was, in my opinion. Yeah, of, of course. And Waters saw the film and loved it and said that it kept intact the central themes mm -hmm. of her novel. To that point, I'll quote her directly from the Guardian article. She described the novel as having roots in, quote, those Victorian novels about murders, madness, and mayhem. And I was like, that's exactly what this movie is about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not, I guess it's not what the, the entire movie is about, but it's how the oppressiveness of social structures create murder and madness and mayhem. Yeah. That kind of thing. I, yeah, so... We can talk a little bit about how the taboo subjects of queer love 
and also class jumping Mm -hmm. and the restrictions of class mobility really informs the plot lines of both of these. So we already mentioned that The Fingersmith takes place in Victorian England, but the movie takes place in 1930s Korea, which is being occupied by Japan. Right. It's under their colonial rule. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned The Guardian there because uh, in 2019, The Guardian ranked The Handmaiden number 41 in its 100 best films of the 21st century. Oh, that's interesting because this article actually came out right before the movie came out. Right. So that's cool. cool. I guess they liked it. Yeah, so the short synopsis of The Handmaiden is, yeah, like you said, in 1930s, Japanese occupied Korea. A con man operating under the identity of Count Fujiwara plans to seduce a Japanese heiress named Lady Hideko and then marry her and commit her to an asylum in order to steal her inheritance. He hires a pickpocket named Suki, which is kind of our main character, uh, to become Hideko's maid and encourage Hideko to marry him. And the plot unfolds from there. So let's uh, compare and contrast the film to the book. Okay, so the book is basically the same baseline story. The major difference is that, number one, how early we find out that Suki, or the in the book, her name is Sue. Uh, oh, which I just put together. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in the book, you find out at the very end of part one that Sue and Rupert, they call him the gentleman, are in cahoots trying to steal the heiress's fortune. In the movie, you find out a lot earlier, which I think just compresses the storyline right there immediately. Yeah. Time isn't wasted trying to convince the reader that this is just some young girl sent off to be a maid. Uh, The timeline is compressed a lot. And then another huge twist is when we find out that the whole time, the gentleman and Maude, who is Hideko's character in the book, are working together. And then the biggest twist of the whole movie, I think, is that Hideko and Suki are working together behind the Count's back. Now, that only happens in the book at the very, very end, after, like, Maude sends Sue to the insane asylum and basically is walking away. Like, she feels guilty because their relationship has already happened, but it takes her on another whole section of the book to convince herself to go back. Yeah. And I think, like, that's a huge missed opportunity and a bunch of wasted time because it's even cooler that then you find out before they even left the uncle's house and escaped the uncle's house that Suki and Hideko are working together. That's another twist. And that was like a a great idea that makes the movie even funner. So those are the biggest changes. I think the other biggest change is that there's not an aunt figure in the book who like trains Hideko and dies, killed by the uncle. Yeah. That's not in there at all. Not not framed for but like as suicide, right? Right. He yeah, frames okay. it as a suicide, but yeah, he killed her. You're you're meant to sort of figure out that he like fed her to an octopus, which is like really fucked up. The right. point is that he ki- the uncle kills the aunt and that's not in the book. Gotcha. Like, bottom line. Uh I think those are the biggest changes. Oh, the other thing too is that um in the movie, Hideko is sort of forced to to actually perform more for the men who come into this sort of like erotic performance of the pornographic scripts so she's kind of there's like this scene with a mannequin and she's sort of strapped to the mannequin and in the book Maud is never asked to do anything except read and that sounds very tame for what actually happens because it's revealed later that she's not just reading, she's also being forced to read this erotic text to these lecherous old men who just come to, like, kind of get their rocks off yeah, in front of this porn. young woman. Yeah, it's, like, really fucked up. Like, the uncle is also not as sadistic in the book. The uncle in the movie is, like, 
insane fucked up like yeah the in part two you realize that hideko's reading practice was kazuki that's her uncle teaching her to erotically read sadistic pornography and she started this practice when she was five years old or was forced into it and yeah and we'll get into the certain symbols um that are scattered throughout the film later but yeah it's yeah it's it's a lot more intense in the movie which i think honestly furthers that i honestly think it furthers how fucked up her situation is right because a lot of the focus is lifted from that in the book because you have like a whole nother half after she's escaped and like yes it it definitely demonstrates how little freedom women had during the victorian period unless they were attached to a man because at one point she does escape she finds a friend of her uncle's in london and that uncle just returns her to her uncle yeah so that's important but for some reason i just felt like it wasn't stressed about how fucked up it was that she was forced to read pornography out loud to like a room of men Mm -hmm. you know with like raging boners like watching this young girl like i thought that i felt like it could have been stressed a little more that it was just like so abusive I think that comes through in the movie a little better. Yeah, and with every chapter, Park Chan-wook keeps on flashing back uh, to the cherry tree, uh, the cherry blossom tree Mm -hmm. that's in the backyard. And for Hideko, this tree is like a tragic form of freedom. The only option for her is suicide. Yeah. Because she can't physically escape because her uncle will find her. Yeah. And he always reminds her of the basement, which is this torture chamber yeah. that he used on her aunt. And he reminds her that that's always there for use on her. And then in the very end, he uses it to kill the Count. Well, yeah. he's going to kill him or just torture him. But then the Count actually gets his final revenge by smoking two mercury-laced cigarettes. Cigarettes, killing them both. Killing them both, yeah. which is... And the very end is just the sound of him breathing deeply because he wants to die, and he inhales the mercury. It's like... Oh, yeah, it's and so his scary. final line is, at least I died with my cock intact. <laughs> yeah. 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 You definitely feel for Hideko more yeah. in the story because of the situation she's in, and... It keeps on teasing her hanging from the tree, or it shows a POV shot of the tree mm-hmm. swaying, or and, and you, you keep on returning to the rope that's hanging from uh, the branch, which you don't realize until part three that that's where Hideko tried to kill herself before Suki saved her mm-hmm. and revealed that uh, she was working um, with the Count, and that's where the double reveal happens where Hideko reveals that she was actually working with the Count as well, and they're scamming her. So that that's how part three starts. When they make their final escape, which you see from a different perspective in part three, you see Hideko climb on top of this small stone wall and then jump off, but you don't see her land, almost like she's jumping from a tree branch to kill herself. Mm-hmm. Kind of metaphorically, she's killing her past self. Mm-hmm. She's killing her bond to that property and moving. There's there's another great visual payoff with that rope because in the very beginning of the movie, like in the first day that Suki is in the mansion, she finds she's going through these hat boxes because she's been promised all of the (laughs) accoutrement, I guess, that comes along with being the handmaiden after their plan to get to put Hideko in the insane asylum so she's going through all of these hat boxes and she finds this huge white rope in a hat box and she's like like what is this like okay whatever moves on to the next box and puts it away and then you find out that that's actually sort of been in a very dark way Hideko's lifeline like she always has that in her closet as an option and I think that we get that emotional angst payoff because the stakes of how fucked up the uncle is have been raised. So that just, I don't think that comes through in the book as much. There's never talk of Maud committing suicide. She knows that her mother had committed suicide and she doesn't want to go insane. What she says as mad, she doesn't want to go mad like her mother or her aunt does. 
but she never thinks about killing herself. Right. Those stakes just aren't there. Not that she's not in a fucked up situation. I just don't think that the book focuses on it enough. And the emotional catharsis that we get when Suki finally enters the library and is like, are you kidding me? Like, this is what you've been reading? Like, this is so fucked up. Like, do you realize, like, you you need to, like, get out now. Like, this is more than what you thought. You know, this has been normalized for you. But, like, you know, this needs to stop now. And they throw everything on the floor. They throw the books in the water. They cast red ink all over the books. It's so cathartic. And we just don't get that in the book. Like, they never go back to that library and have this destroying moment that's very freeing. Like, we don't get that either in the book. Yeah, Park Chan-wook specializes in cathartic, satisfying and devastating finales. And that's what part three delivers. And my favorite part about that scene is when Suki beheads the snake, this very phallic symbol that signifies the border of Kazuki's library slash chamber where he physically and metaphorically confines the woman in his life. So with one one swoop, Suki beheads the, this metaphorical penis yeah. and drowns, like literally drowns his work, his prized possessions, what he values most mm-hmm. in, in the water in his little sanctuary area. So, I mean, you can't get a more metaphorical and literal ending than that. It's like as satisfying as you can get. And, and you said exactly what I was thinking. There is stakes to this story because... Mm-hmm. At first, Hideko's only out is suicide, and now she found a true life partner who she loves, and as they leave, they destroy uh, their oppressors in their path. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good sum up of, of the whole thing. I think the only criticism that I found about the book was that it focused more on the challenges of class mobility rather than it being a struggle between the two lesbian lovers Mm -hmm. which i think is interesting there's a there's a subtle distinction i think if you read the book because of course it's not socially acceptable to be queer in the victorian english society Mm -hmm. but at the same time i think there were a lot of acceptable gender cross I don't know what to say, gender crossing? Like, think about the favorite, right? Like, yeah. the handmaiden was able to have a sexual, almost like a condoned sexual relationship with the queen because there were things that, like, were acceptable at that time, right? And mm-hmm. so, like, it's not so much that they have to overcome society's condemnation of their relationship, it's that they have to overcome the power dynamics of, like, marriage and male oppression and sexual oppression for women and you know what like that's an interesting distinction the other thing that i thought was really interesting was that something that i've come to be aware of as we go on with this podcast is that a lot of minority groups feel like even though sometimes they get representation in pop culture there's usually a very tragic beginning or ending to that story yeah and i think it's really interesting that both of these pieces decided to go with a i don't know what to say a nice ending or like yeah a, like a happy ending <laughs> yeah for the for these queer love stories like i think that's a really beautiful choice i think like i think it's interesting that the focus wasn't on the gender relationship mm-hmm. it was more of what other things were keeping these two women away from each other or these four women away from each other. And then at the very end, they get this like, especially again, especially in the movie where they completely hoodwink the count. Yeah. And he ends up fingerless (laughs) and he's going to have his penis chopped off. And his other hand has a whole, it was drilled through. Yeah. The uncle like drills through his hand. Yeah. It's so gross. And then I think, like, it's really key that he says, at least I died with my cock intact. Yeah. Because, again, it goes back to how oppressive 
the phallic penis symbols have been in these women's lives. And like, he knows like, that's my only claim to power is the fact that I'm a male. And at least I kept that intact. Right. Right. Like I'm dying, but I'm still a masculine oppressive power in this storyline. Like how fucked up is that? Yeah, I know. The, The amount of symbols in this movie is just off the charts and they all say, kind of a similar thing. They all inform what the characters are going through. One, I noticed my third go around, because when we watched it last night, it was the third time I'd watched this film, were the use of gloves, how they Mm -hmm. represent Hideko's metaphorical and literal imprisonment. So whenever she's around men or around her uncle, more specifically, she has her gloves on. And it's only when she feels comfortable around Suki where she takes them off and you can even see at the start of every scene I noticed this she will literally take them off and the camera will go on a close-up of her hand saying like this is the real me I'm free with you and it's only at the very end when they're on the boat escaping on their voyage to their new life where they take both of their gloves put a ring through them as they're joining them and throw it off the boat like the hand of man has been strangling us literally yeah and now now we're free we're finally free two thoughts about that too there is a scene with hideko when she's reading this sexual encounter between these the a man and a woman and she puts her gloved hands which are so her gloves are like jet black and her face is painted completely white and she puts them around her neck as the erotic choking is happening Mm -hmm. and she's enacting this in front of the old gross men and like that's a very intense scene but it's exactly what you're saying like those gloves are constricting her like her voice her life and then in the very end like you know i just talked about how the count says like you know at least i kept my manhood right like they escape by cloaking Hideko as a man. Yeah. Or, like, dressing her as a man. And so it's just showing how, like, they got the last laugh over the count, but at the same time, like, they still have to restrict themselves to this masculine order. Yeah. And, you know, she's wearing a suit and a hat and a mustache, which they also take off, by the way, with the gloves, which I think is a great little piece of symbolism, too. Yeah. But it just shows that, like, the masculine oppression does not end with their story. They're just able to sort of live within the confines of what people expect to see in a relationship. Yeah, that is true about how a lot of these period dramas end with the two lesbian characters in a doomed relationship. And this movie, along with uh, Carol, which came out a year prior in 2015, they spawned a whole new genre of films, which I, which I, this is like a joke now. This is a a full on genre, which I call period drama about two lesbians, one of them rich, one of them poor, who form a romantic relationship. And then it doesn't work out, right? Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, most of, so here are some examples of movies that came out after The Handmaiden. So The Favorite, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, uh, Ammonite, the World to Come with Vanessa Kirby, who we love, uh, Colette, and then there's a show on uh, Showtime, I believe, called Gentleman Jack, which, yeah, all period dramas, all about two lesbians who form a relationship in a time when that's not acceptable. One character is usually very rich or royalty or something adjacent to that, and the other character is either a servant or poor or comes in doing a certain profession and then they strike a relationship yeah it's 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 a whole genre yeah well and and i don't i don't mean to speak for the lgbtq plus community but i think like it's important for representation but it's also important to see that queer love stories do work out and there don't have to be these restrictions to them right we don't have to be looking to check a box or fit a box when things do or don't work out. I think, right, it's important because there are probably just as many, if not more, heterosexual 
love stories that work out at the end. Like, that's the yeah. cliche, right? Is that, like, hetero love stories work out no matter what, right? Yeah. But, like, unfortunately, the reality is that queer love stories have been restricted. So I think it's a better narrative now to go back to The Handmaiden and say, like, they did work it out. Yeah. Because they were smart and they were resourceful and they understood the restrictions and overcame them. Yeah. So I think that's an important story to tell. Yeah. Like, even Call Me By Your Name is, like... Yeah. One of my favorite movies, but it doesn't have a happy love story. Yeah, and yeah, that's not to say, yeah, like we love Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and that the fact that they're lesbians is almost circumstantial. It's more of just, you know, they were at two different points in their lives, and they couldn't be mm. together. So, yeah. but it is sort of the cliche that they don't work. Yes. Out. So like, yeah. <laughs> I think, again, it's important to show that they can't work out. Yes. And that's what this movie does, and the book does too, but it just not in a. Just not in a, as, not in the way that the movie does. Yeah, not as elegantly or as succinctly. Exactly, if you could, which is exactly what I did not do. Yeah, and, and it's crazy to call the movie succinct, being that it's two and a half hours. But again, we'll mention that those that time flies by. And you had mentioned earlier, too, that this movie was unrestricted. Oh boy, that's putting it lightly. I, Yeah, I hate censorship just as a general rule in uh, movies and like with I, I agree that there needs to be ratings like you don't want a kid going into an R-rated rated movie or like this movie mm. but censorship is something that I don't really agree with and so warnings versus censorship is what you're saying right yeah like there should be a warning right yep versus, yeah versus things being like taken out yeah right yeah Park Chan-wook had full reign and gets super explicit with his scenes. And my favorite symbol in the whole movie were the uh, the beads. So in the beginning, at one point, they were a symbol for torture and oppression because whenever Hideko stepped out of line, her uncle would whip these beads on her That's hand. Yeah. yeah oh and, my god, that looks so painful. And she's like a young girl the first time this happens. Yeah, and then at the very end of the movie, these beads have been repurposed for intense pleasure and passion. Sex uh, toys. Yeah. They're sex toys, yeah. Yeah, between these two lovers who are, like, starting their new life. Mm-hmm. And you see, yeah, you see it all in the scene. They put the beads in their mouth. They pleasure each other with them. I mean, it's just fully out there. And there's another, there are two graphic lesbian sex scenes earlier on in the film. And there wasn't as much controversy as I thought there would be around this film, and specifically those scenes. Uh, Sarah Waters gave the blessing to this material in those scenes, and based on my research, I found that Park Chan-wook ensured the privacy and comfort of the actresses. Like, only female crew members, reportedly, were on set during those scenes. Do Have we talked about this on the podcast, how there are sex coaches? For movies and television shows? I don't know. Maybe. I feel like I remember talking about this to somebody, but I saw this in like a, I don't know, like a video somewhere. I can't remember where I saw it. But there are literally sex coaches who come in and coach the actors on how to be believable, but also comfortable with each other during sex scenes. And I think that the beautiful thing about these explicit sex scenes is that the point is they're away from the male gaze. Yeah. They're completely uninformed by hetero mentality, uh, you know, judgment of the male gaze. Like, they're wholly female-informed experiences. And I think that if we think of these movie, this movie as explicit, which, it, to be fair, it is. Yeah. You know, you can, though, compare it to plenty of other hetero-centric male gaze movies, aka anything that was made between the years of, like, 1999 and 2010, any, you know, rom-com and stuff like that, where you see, like, boobs and butts yeah. and, like, no penises. <laughs> yeah, early 2000s comedies just have aged like milk. Right. It's It's a, a huge bummer. Right, but what I'm saying <laughs> is, like, those were made informed by the male gaze. And, like, we don't experience those things as super explicit but anytime you're seeing someone without their clothing on like it is explicit right and Mm -hmm. a lot of those movies are rated like pg-13 so i think that again the beautiful thing is this movie is rated r or unrated unrated in america yeah right so you know be fair warned that there are sex scenes but i think that 
it's beautiful even for a heterosexual person to see something happen outside of the male gaze. I think it's really empowering. Right. I love it. And I can't speak a lot to that being a man myself, but it does seem like Park Chan-wook really achieved getting that non-male gaze visual language being a male himself. And he really fostered a, a comfortable, safe environment by not being on set uh, during these sex scenes, having the camera uh, be remote because the cinematographer is also a male. His name is Chung Hoon Chung. Amazing, beautiful cinematography. I mean, yeah. overlooked for awards during the 2017 Oscar season. It was a stacked year. He was up against Moonlight, La La Land, and Arrival. So it makes sense that one of the films got lost in the shuffle. But yeah, he's an amazing cinematographer. He, he shot Stoker, which was... we love. Yeah, he shot uh, the It remake in 2017. And his upcoming film, Last Night in Soho, we can't oh, wait for. Edgar Wright, I, baby. We cannot wait for that. He shot my that. I mind excited for that movie. That's coming out in October. Yeah. Which is another stacked month for movie drops this year. Yeah, but from the camera movement to color to lighting to composition, even the use of like rain and, and wind, it's all simply top-notch cinematography and staging uh, by the director. He really has a way of making the camera feel like a, a character because throughout the film you get the uh, subjective views of certain characters. Like in part one, when it's Suki, you see stuff from her perspective with handheld cameras. And then part two, when it becomes the Count and Hideko, you see it from their perspectives. And then finally, that subjective POV goes away and part three, because now Hideko and Suki are like joined in one and they're in harmony with each other. So you you don't see it from a singular point of view anymore because now you're dealing with two people and you're you know, like you're dealing with a melding of a viewpoint, if that makes any sense. No, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I was going to say one more thing about how the movie makes it very clear that this is a female-centric sexual experience by quoting the that Guardian article, which I can post also on our Facebook page after this drops, but I was going to quote, In the film, as in the book, the key to a sexuality that is exclusive to women is the exchange of body fluids. Maud having sex for the first time is a very moist experience compared to the dry experience of a book, says Waters. The lacquered artifice of Hideko's performances also contrasts with the juiciness of the women's lovemaking, which begins with an exchange of lollipop-flavored lollipop saliva and ends with the oral lubrication of Japanese sex toys. Yeah. So I just wanted There's to a like lot of highlight. I know it's like a little bit of an explicit <laughs> quote excerpt, but I wanted to again focus on how that was very informed by the female sexual experience, which is contrasted very visually with the experiences in the pornographic readings. Yeah. Which are heterosexual, aggressively heterosexual, and read for the gratification of the male gaze. Mm -hmm. That's So I just, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you, but that was like my final thought. On there are a lot of words in that quote. I'm going to have to look up some of them. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you use phrases like lacquered artifice and oral lubrication. Yeah, that's all in the movie and it's very tastefully done. But yeah, warning, it is full-on see everything when Suki goes down on Hideko pulls up her face is just fully covered in uh, juices. juices so yeah it's really it's um, it's intense but but beautiful, but beautiful and, and tasteful yeah. and nothing drives me up a wall more than seeing people or like YouTube critics be like did I just watch softcore porn like this is and it's like first of all grow up like what are we in middle yeah. school yeah. I, I feel like watching some youtubers review this movie I feel like I'm back in sixth grade when we were like getting the sex ed talk sure. And seeing, you know, photos of genitals and there's the kid in the back laughing. I mean, you really need to be mature to absorb this material. Well, another beautiful thing about the first sex scene that they have is the fact that the bedroom is entirely free of sexual power dynamics. Yeah. Like, sure, Hideko is 
way higher on the social class than Suki, but there's a shot that goes bird's eye view above them on the bed, and they're sort of in this 69 sexual orientation, but the camera keeps flipping around, and so you see them, it's almost like a circle. Yeah. And it's showing you very clearly, like, these people are completely equal. Yeah. There's no power dynamic between these two people, and that's a beautiful thing, and that's not something that you're going to get if you're just saying, like, oh, ha, 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 they're naked in bed, like, yeah. oh, like, cover my eyes because I'm uncomfortable. It's like, no, this is symbolizing the fact that there's no power dynamics between them. This is, like, pure love. Yep. They are, like, performing for each other when they're, you know, making love. It's like a mutual appreciation, and they're under the guise of, oh, this is how you're going to act when you marry the Count, but they right. both kind of know that maybe there's something else going on and then literally when they have sex it's like okay yeah a new relationship has formed yeah i just the story it flies by because once you get over that first hour and you get the first twist then it's just reveal after reveal so incredibly told and uh, entertaining so I, I love how patient the movie is because mm -hmm. it's not until the hour and one minute mark when the first twist happens when they're on their way to the mental hospital to commit Hideko and then Hideko reveals she was in cahoots with the Count all along they frame Suki as the crazy one mm -hmm. and then so part two is from Hideko's perspective, and then you learn that halfway through the Count's plan, he realized, okay, I can't seduce Hideku. this is futile, let me join up with her. So then, yeah, part two is learning the whole time from their perspective that they were actually working to dupe Suki. And then at the end of part two, then we get that final twist where Hideko tries to kill herself because Suki tells her to marry the Count anyways, even though they've already made love and they clearly love each other. She tries to kill herself. Suki catches her as she's hanging off of the cherry tree. And then it's revealed in part three that at that moment moving forward, Suki and Hideko are working together to dupe the Count. Yeah. So it's just constantly building on itself. Every chapter is different from the last. The first hour is beautiful, but like I said, very patient. You need you need that hour of setup in order to get the remaining hour and 20 minutes of just pure misdirect and satisfying payoffs of the ladies metaphorically and literally killing the men. Yeah, one of my favorite payoffs, possibly my favorite payoff, is the little moment right before Suki is dragged into the mental hospital and the camera pans from her panicking and realizing like, oh shit, I'm the one who's being put into this prison. The camera pans super quickly to Hideko and she's giggling. She kind of does this like, <laughs> kind of like chuckle yeah. while her back is turned to the count. And you're like, the fuck? Like, yeah. the first time you watch that, you're like, are you serious? Like she's that fucked up? Like, holy shit. She's that committed to the plan? Like, she totally fucks over her lover and like is like laughing about it. But then at the very end, you're like, she's laughing because she's like, this is where it begins, baby. Like this is yeah. when we start taking down the count. Like yeah. brilliant. Those kinds of payoffs that you don't get until you have the twist. I mean, beautiful writing. Like that, it doesn't get much better than that. My, I love that. Yeah, my favorite payoff is with the Count's blue cigarettes because earlier on in, in, in part two, the Count gives Hideko a vial of opium. So saying that if your uncle ever finds out about this plan and wants to take you to the basement, just take this to kill yourself. But then you're thinking, okay, the Count knows that if the uncle finds out about these plans, he's going to kill them. So he's like, what's the Count's suicide contingency plan? Yeah. Earlier on in the film, as he's on his way to the compound, he opens up his cigarette container and you see two blue cigarettes at the end. You're like, wait, what's that? Of course, at the end, when he's being taken back to the compound after being caught uh, with his pants down, with his pants down. <laughs> yeah, uh, after Hideko drugged him, 
he smokes the three non-blue cigarettes, only leaving two behind. So when he's with the evil uncle in the basement, he can kill them both by smoking what is, yeah, mercury-laced. So I, that, that's my favorite. Great, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. textbook setup payoff yeah. right there. Information drops that the character off-screen processes, makes takes action on, right, and then happens on screen later. Like beautiful. Right, because this movie invites your participation, and Park Chan Wook and his co-writer Seo Kyung Young, they respect the audience enough to make the assumption that the Count must have a contingency plan. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, because he's not stupid. Right. He's not a dumb character. And that's set up because we know that these Korean characters have been oppressed by the Japanese occupation. And so they have been scrounging. And, And this is set up in the book, too. But they're basically thieves. That's what the fingersmith means, right? Is that she can, like, use her fingers to make her fortune. So these people are scrappy, like they've been oppressed. And so this is the kind of behavior that you would expect from people who might have very actionable suicide contingency plans. Smart characters, smart writing. Yeah. And the Count, just in general, is a very complex villain. I like him a lot because if they just had the uncle character, that would have been a little too... A little too one-dimensional. And he's one-dimensional on purpose. I mean, he is pure evil. Yeah, he is, he, in the story, he is a Korean man who helped the Japanese invade his own country. That's how much he hates Korea. I guess I would say he's the epitome of lust, right? And yeah. And lecherism. Yeah, and sadistic sexual desire. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because even when he's torturing the Count at the end of the movie, he's grilling him about his wedding night with his niece. niece. Yeah. Because he was supposed to marry the niece for money, but obviously had he married her, it would have become sexual instantly. Yeah. Which is just, like, so gross. That's probably the only scene in the movie that I think could have been cut down a little bit, because at that point, you yeah. get it. You get that the uncle is depraved. Yeah, like, and, he's not he's not crossing a line that he hasn't already crossed, right? Right, You yeah. see him torturing instead of theoretically, but, you know, like, with Jaws, right? Like, the monster you don't see is the scarier monster. I think the torture yeah. you don't see is scarier. So yeah. I, I think that this could have been... Although, <laughs> the one time when the knife doesn't go through this finger on the first try, and he has to bang on the knife, that is, oh my god, I couldn't watch that. Yeah, the, the, anyway. the torture itself, I actually don't have a problem with. I was saying just cutting down his long monologues of oh, asking about yeah. his, how his niece looked yeah. when she was consummating her marriage on on her marriage night i mean he keeps on just asking about her body and what she looked like and if she squealed and if she asked for and it just it goes on a little bit long it's one of the few scenes in the movie that could have been cut down this movie probably could have been shorter by i don't know five to ten minutes but even then as you said ad nauseum at this point time flies by yeah just maybe i'm nitpicking at this point but make it 135 minutes instead of 145 minutes and now you've got now you've got like top 10 movies of all time uh Mm -hmm. list probably it's funny the apparently there's an extended version of this movie which is 168 minutes uh that's park chan wook's preferred version of the film really i didn't know that yeah and interested to know maybe i'd go back to the extended cut and just watch what was cut out rather than watching it in 168 consecutive minutes. Yeah, <laughs> a, that's probably, that especially now having just watched it. Yeah, pro- yeah, I mean, yeah again, we love yeah. love the film, but yeah, it'll uh, we need some time to sit with this. And no, it's funny. I went I went in a wave with this film because the first time I watched this, I knew nothing, and the twists absolutely blew me away. Yeah. The second time I watched it was the first time you watched it, mm-hmm. and I liked it a little bit less just because I knew what the twists were and I was kind of just waiting for your reaction and I was so focused on that that I was spacing out on certain other details. Now with this third time watching it, both having seen it, both knowing what the twists were, now I could fully absorb 
all the symbolism the and stuff. yeah, back yeah. what was going on. Park Chan Wook is a master at mise en scene. Mm -hmm. Everything is just happening in the frame. The camera is constantly moving and swaying. I mean, South Korean cinema just it hits different. Like it, it just it has a different feel and vibe to American films. It, it's very experimental, which I love. I love that type of stuff. Like take the camera swirl it around the room like make it do a, a quick zoom out of nowhere that's, that's jarring does yeah so well. this movie is just completely unafraid to take risks to challenge you to be very weird to be explicit and i love it i love when movies just don't care about mass audience appeal mm -hmm. that's why i think we really gravitated towards the green knight which mm -hmm. uh, oh we're definitely going to cover that on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, which A24 is a distribution company that really picks films that are anti-box office friendly. I mean, yeah, we have a poster of Ex Machina in our apartment. Yeah, we love all, yeah. we love, oh, Midsummer, which oh, is Midsummer's A24. Uh, I love The Lighthouse. I love. I did not love The Lighthouse. Well, that's, <laughs> The Lighthouse is a whole other thing. Um, Just fucked me up. Yeah, um. I really love A24, but yeah, The Green Knight is two hours, but it's much slower and somber and quieter. Somber is a perfect word yeah, for that movie. And meditative than I was thinking. And, and this movie's the same way, where it's just unconcerned with dumbing stuff down, unconcerned with not making... That doesn't make sense. It, it is concerned with making every single frame have meaning, every single... Th object that they pick up has is a symbol mm -hmm. it's just teeming with meaning in every single way it, it's almost too much like doing this podcast i was stressed out because it's like how can we bring up everything that this movie is saying well isn't that the smartness of smart movies though right because then it, it invites you to continuously watch them yeah like, like i think another to go back to how complex the count's character is I actually didn't catch the first time that we watched this that he figures out that Hideku is gay. Mm. And he says that to her and he's like, listen, like, I want your money. You want freedom because you're never going to find happiness in a marriage to a man. Now, he does overstep that because he still thinks that if he has sex with her, then she'll change into being a heterosexual person. Yeah. Who is he, James is Bond? <laughs> <laughs> that happens in more. yeah, that happens in Goldfinger. Yeah. Exactly, but like that's the arrogance and the power that the heterosexual ignorance. Ignorance. Yeah, or or I was going to say majority, but yeah, ignorance goes into that's sort of one of his character flaws he's been informed by this heterosexual society but that blinds him to the fact that again when on their quote-unquote wedding night when they finally escape the uncle he's kind of he's really turned on when Hideku takes a sip of the wine that she's that she's laced with opium and sort of spits it in his mouth because he won't drink it yeah and he's like, oh, this is like sexy time, right? Like, oh, this is so sexy and kinky. But that blinds him to the fact that she's drugging him. Yeah. Like, I love how that plays, how he thinks that he's smart and he thinks that he's so sexy that he can like overcome those things, but it actually creates a blind spot for him. Right. Smart writing. Yeah. His penis was doing all the thinking in, in that regard. Yes. And that's what got him in trouble. But luckily, he died with his penis still intact. Good for him. Good. He's also dead, and yeah. like Hideku and Suki can go off and live their beautiful life together. Like I think they come out on top, but that's just me. Yeah, you gotta <laughs> with this intense of a story, you gotta, you gotta make the audience uh, happy at the end, and yes. that's certainly what Park Chan Wook does. A lot of his movies don't end in a happy way, which is kind of shocking that he, this is, feels kind of soft for him to have a happy ending. Stoker <laughs> has an arguably happy well, ending. Well, <laughs> see, that's the thing. Even then, though, it has that element of like, oh, wow, she's a full-on murderer now. Like, it's a violently happy ending. Yeah, it's, but it, you have that in the back of her mind, knowing like, how long can she live, probably? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Great, yeah. It, yeah. But, yeah. Still, but it's very satisfying. <laughs> Right, exactly. Um, another last symbol between a lot of Park Chan-wook films is uh, Octopus. Famously an old boy 
the character eats a live octopus and the actor in that film actually did that. You can look it up, look at, on YouTube, go up to live octopus eating old boy. It's a, a crazy clip and there's that octopus in the film which is used as kind of a metaphor for the Count's sexual hold over his wife and then his niece. And then, of course, at the end, the Count dies next to his octopus tank. A very poetic justice in that sense. So I just want to mention that. Lots of octopus themes in Park Chan-wook's films. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that the octopus imagery comes back when it's the first explicit image that Suki sees in the uncle's collection of pornographic texts. It's the dream of the fisherman's wife. You can Google it. It's a pretty well-known explicit piece of Japanese art. And I, oh, I also wanted to mention that like, we don't have any trouble with like explicit images. We have trouble with like young girls and women being like forced to describe and read out those images to gross men listening but anyway i wanted to say that 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 octopus imagery is in that painting and it also comes back when we find out that the uncle has a massive octopus living in his basement yeah basically you're saying pornography is cool forced pornography by your creepy uncle is not cool yeah, I mean, yeah, there's <laughs> <Yeah>. like, yeah. <laughs> yep, that's where we're very pro-porn on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, um, responsibly sourced porn. Yeah. Right, yeah, where... Everyone's paid, everyone's comfortable. Comfortable, <laughs> and they're empowered, and they're not forced into it. No judgment here, a job's a job. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so, anyways, <laughs> um, how'd we get here? The... Yeah, that's about it for what I have to say. Um, Final ratings or final thoughts? If you want to read the book, it's fine. I didn't personally like it, so I'm going to give it like a... Like a two out of four stars. Mm -hmm. I would even maybe say like 1.5. I just didn't like it. And honestly, like I've told two people now, like skip the book. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's really hard to recommend... As far as the movie, I personally say 3.5 out of 4 just because it's a little bit long. I love it. Mm-hmm. It's just a little bit long for me, but I love it. Yeah. And it's worth it, too. Right, yeah. 4 to 4 for me, uh, pretty easily. One of my favorites of the 2010s. It wasn't my favorite of 2016 when it came out. Arrival was my favorite of mm-hmm. 2016. And also Moonlight came out on 2016 so yeah famously south korea did not submit this film for best foreign language film now called best international film but in 2016 they did not submit this film because countries you know other than america only have they can only submit one Uh... award for for best uh international film all movies are up for best picture and other awards but when it comes to best foreign film slash international film a country is allowed one film to submit do you agree with that or do you not agree with that yeah the thing is the argument is that there's so many films made that it's kind of impossible to weed out just five but the thing is it's like you weed out just like nine for best picture so it's like the best films should just be nominated so I disagree in circumstances like this when South Korea nominated The Age of Shadows instead of The Handmaiden, which no one no one knew or expected The Age of Shadows to be up for the awards, and that movie has the lasting impact of cotton candy and hot water. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's just a bummer, because it seems like you miss out on so much. Yeah. Especially if it's nominated for Best Cinematography. Right. Really, like... Yeah, it was a huge shock when The Handmaiden was not up for that award because it was expected to win Best Foreign Film and it uh, wasn't nominated. won that year, Best International Film? The Salesman, which actually is pretty well-regarded and well-known in the film cinephile community, but yeah. Gotcha. Well, I guess something we didn't touch on but we don't really have time to go over is how it was smart to set this during 1930s. Japanese occupation of Korea because I think it just added an extra layer of yeah struggle for these characters lives furthers the metaphor of some external force 
oppressing you like in your own land in your own home and external almost to the second degree because japanese culture was very informed by western culture because during that time there was a lot of emphasis on sort of western political structures yeah and culture so it's just interesting too to see all of these traditional japanese architecture styles and fashion styles juxtaposed against the english styles which are very you know restrictive and Mm -hmm. right so it's just interesting to watch that time period because i think it just adds an extra level of imperialism occupation and colonialism um, conversations i guess i i just would never have since we're not steeped in that culture it's difficult to speak to the degree that it adds but it adds a lot to someone who doesn't know a lot about that time period and culture so absolutely yeah yeah it's so, very accessible for us americans wonderful movie truly i recommend the movie over the book yeah check it out it's streaming on amazon prime currently so yeah thanks for tuning in we will be back next week with jurassic park ever heard of oh, it great yeah <laughs> And yeah, please rate and review, subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, if you want to, no pressure. And we'll see you on the next one.